Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrea Hamill about her new book, Finding Refuge. Andrea is a reader in German at Aberystwyth University in Wales. She has published on women refugee writers as well as the social and cultural history of refugees from National Socialism, and especially the Kinder Transport. Andrea, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, as you said, I'm an academic. I work at Aberystwyth University and I've been researching refugees from National Socialism for the last sort of 25, actually probably almost 30 years. And um, I normally write academic works, but I've written this more um, sort of accessible for general readership work, finding refuge. Okay. Um, as as listeners can probably tell, uh, Andrea does not have a mid Wales accent. Uh, do you want to explain how you ended up in Aberystwyth? Oh yes, yes. Uh, I like talking about that. So I, I was born in West Germany in nineteen sixty eight, and I lived uh, in Germany for twenty years, um, going to school. You know, living with my parents in West Germany. But after finishing school, I very much wanted to get away from what I felt was very parochial at the time, parochial small West Germany. So I, I went far away. It felt far. And so I went to the U, came to the UK. I lived in London for a year and I volunteered in a place that um, educated young people with physical disabilities. And then I met someone and he had a place at a university and um, we both went to university together. I was an undergraduate in the UK and then obviously studied postgraduate work, PhD, and became a lecturer. I worked at the uh, Sussex University at the Center for German Jewish Studies until uh, 2010. And then in 2010, I came to Aberystwyth University. And uh, yeah, as I say in my book, all things being equal, I'm not intending to leave for any uh, long uh, space of time. Yeah, so listeners are aware I'm in Bangor, which is just up the coast um, from from Aberystwyth. So I'm in North Wales and um, Andrew's in uh, Mid Wales. Um, but in a way, Andrew, you followed a similar trajectory um, to some of the people who you wrote about in your book almost literally right that is true uh, although you know my journey my journey was far less painful it wasn't scary I wasn't I didn't have to leave because I was persecuted it was purely I wanted to uh, get away but some people do say that sometimes your research is a little bit about yourself and maybe there is a little bit about that a person who left and uh, then resettled uh, somewhere else. That's definitely also part of my life story. But the people, the stories I tell in the book are, of course, of people who had to leave. If they didn't, wouldn't have left, they might well have ended up murdered in the Holocaust. So would you like to tell us, um, how did you come to write Finding Refuge? Yes, well, I'm, when I started working at um, Aberystwyth University, my then uh, head of department, the late David Trotter, uh, pointed out to me that one of his neighbours was actually uh, a man who came uh, to uh, the UK on a kinder transport, um, William Dienemann, 
in his earlier life. He was Wolfgang Dienemann. He was from Berlin. He fled as a nine-year-old. And so I, I interviewed him, and then I started uh, looking at different life stories. Uh, about three years ago, I also received some funding for a project from the National Heritage Lottery Fund. The project was in conjunction with the Imperial War Museums London and eight hubs all over the UK, such hubs in Northern Ireland, in Cornwall, in Scotland, Man Manchester Jewish Museum, uh, places like that. And uh, the project we focused on was refugees from National Socialism uh, in Wales, because really that hasn't been focused on in the same way as uh, refugees from National Socialism who resettled in England. And I think that's important uh, because some people, especially people who don't live in Wales, have rather a sort of a strange idea of Welsh society, uh, the Welsh people, the people who live in Wales. It is all very homogenous and that really um, everybody sort of either Welsh speaker or everybody lives in South Wales and, and comes from a mining family or something like that. We all know that's not true, but uh, I felt like I needed to add another chapter to the sort of diverse history of Wales. Why do you think Wales hasn't received as much attention? Well, it is obviously uh, much smaller, and um, and and I think it is to do with the fact that the big um, sort of centres maybe of Jewish life are also not in Wales. They are obviously in, in May, more in London and, and maybe Manchester. Uh, I think that has, has something uh, to, to do with it. So I think um, this, these are the, the reasons. And I have certainly found a lot of stories. And we, we, we now believe um, that there might have been as many as 2,000 refugees from National Socialism living in Wales in the, in the 1930s. But we, it, it, a, the research area definitely has a problem with numbers. So we can't, we can't really prove that. But we've done, we've done um, some sort of more intensive research on the, on the smaller uh, counties like Caradigio, and we looked at the local archives, and we found many more uh, refugees than we expected, because people, of course, had to had to sign the aliens register, so you can find out who lived there in the nineteen thirties. Um, that's very interesting, um, and I'll, I'll I'll probably ask you a bit more about the um some of the things I found interesting in the book in a minute. Um, so would you like to just sort of run through how you structured the book? Well, we, 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 I structured the book, um, I wanted to tell a, a diverse range of stories. I wanted to tell stories of people who came as families, stories of uh, young refugees, older refugees. Then also I wanted to include uh, different uh, professional experiences, so uh, refugee industrialists, uh, refugee artists as well, refugee domestics, uh, a sort of a, a wide range. And of course, yeah, as I said, younger and older and especially younger, also child uh, refugees. So in the end, I also managed, I think, to cover quite a, a sort of big range of locations as well, ra ranging from South Wales to to um, uh, refugees who resettled in Midwales, where I am, and, and also people who resettled uh, further uh, north. So uh, I, in the in the book, I do tell uh, stories of refugee industrialists who said settle on the Trey Forest industrial estate uh, near Pontypridd. I tell a story of a child refugee who uh, resettles uh, near 
uh, uh, resettles in, near Aberystwyth, but also uh, on Innesmon. And um, there's also Gwyk Castle, which was uh, a setting for a, a, a community of uh, young refugees uh, as well. So Gwyk Castle near, near Abergele. So I wanted to tell these these different these different stories, and that's really how I um how how I structured the book. To a certain extent, I was guided by how much information I could find. There, sometimes we found the start of a very interesting story, but obviously I needed to be able to find uh, enough information so I could could tell uh, sort of give a full picture. So do you want to give us a snapshot of, um, say, one of the um, individuals that you focused yes, on? Yes, sure. Um, for example, um, the only, only uh, story of sort of the family that uh, settled in the industrial areas, there's, for example, the Koppel family is a, a very interesting uh, story. Um, the um, oldest generation of the family, uh, Joachim Koppel, he was an entrepreneur in uh, Germany, uh, in Berlin, who then, after 1933, decided that he would move his family and his business interests to Czechoslovakia, because he obviously they were they were a Jewish family and and he saw that they wouldn't be able to continue living and working in in Germany. So first to Czechoslovakia and then uh, he tried to get uh, all members of the family to the UK. A um, bit of a complicated story, but um, interestingly, he was initially not keen to come to Wales. Joachim Koppel, he. Um, would have preferred to live in London and have his business in London, but there uh, were subsidies available in the so-called special areas, uh, areas of high unemployment. The British government gave subsidies to uh, people who were willing to establish a business in these areas and employ local people. Uh, so that attracted him, and he, he was in business with, with a couple uh, more refugees that attracted them to this industrial estate, the Treforest Industrial Estate in uh, South Wales. So eventually he agreed to establish his business there. And for a while he actually lived in London and he commuted to his business in South Wales. But when 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 war broke out, uh, he actually also he did move uh, to Wales. So him, the oldest generation, very reluctant to actually come to Wales. Interesting uh, then his uh, sons and stepsons uh, and uh, stepdaughter, they had uh, sort of quite a different uh, relationship. So his um, uh, his uh, uh, stepson uh, Heinrich uh, Koppel, he uh, was an engineer and he was uh, a leading brain of part of the business on the Treforest estate. Uh, he was... Um, and he and in his he he lived with his family in in Cardiff, um, and then uh, he, one of his sons he became a well known artist Heinz Koppel, who also lived in uh, in South Wales. He he also uh, was part uh, of an artistic movement and a sort of community artist school in Merthyr Tydwell, and he later lived. Uh, in near Aberystwyth, so he 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 wasn't keen on his father's sort of following his father's footsteps on the business. He 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 became a well-known artist 
and and they very much became uh, part of uh, yeah I don't know part of the fabric of of Welsh uh, life. So they're an interesting family. Um, completely different end of the spectrum, I suppose, or maybe not. Uh, the um, ca- a, a, a refugee domestic, so someone um, who could uh, only escape Nazi Germany if they were willing to work as a domestic servant in the UK. So I don't know whether I should go back that far, but there generally two, there were four ways you could get. Uh, into the UK and you could get a visa and a work permit, which you needed as an adult to get there. So one uh, possibility was if you were very famous, like Sigmund Freud, uh, you might get special uh, uh, permission. And then the other possibility was if you were able to establish a business, like I just said, with the Koppel family, or if you were willing uh, to work in an area where there was not enough uh, British labor, if people didn't want to do those jobs, and domestic service uh, was uh, one of them. So uh, I tell the story of Fanny Hörstetter, who was uh, actually uh, quite a high-ranking civil servant in, uh, in Germany before the Nazis came to power in 1933, but very soon after they came in power, they introduced a law that uh, stopped uh, Jews from working in the civil service. Um, and uh, so she had to give up her job. She was very upset about that. She was a, a professional woman and very proud of her career. But she, in the end, obviously there was nothing she could do. And she was first reluctant to leave uh, Germany. Uh, because she was hoping, you know, that maybe things wouldn't be as bad and things would play over, blow over. But in the end, uh, she had to relent. And her sister already had a job as a domestic service servant in the Wirral, uh, and so the sister uh, got a job for Fanny as well. Fanny um, only managed to get this job by her uncle giving her a glowing reference, which was not based on truth. So her uncle gave her a glowing reference saying she was incredibly good at housework. In fact, Fanny didn't like housework. She detested housework. Uh, but still, um, she she managed, through this, she managed to get to the UK. And um, that meant that she had um, she 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 didn't enjoy her time her time as a domestic server servant living with a family uh, in the world. They treated her. She felt they treated her like a skivvy. They only spoke to her if, when they were giving orders, and probably the fact that she she didn't really like housework wouldn't have endeared herself to the, to to this employer either. So eventually, when when the first initially um, people couldn't change their employers if they had come to the UK. Uh, under a certain scheme, and if they'd come, um, they had to actually work with uh, with to with the employer uh, at the employers that had uh, they had originally uh, applied for. Uh, but fortunately, once war broke out, this uh, this sort of rule got changed, and she was able to seek different employment. And she ended up working as a, I suppose we would say, chambermaid as a cleaner in the Hand Hotel in Klangloch-Gochlen. And she um, she liked that more. I mean, obviously, that was still a cleaning uh, business, but on the other hand, it meant she was together uh, with fellow refugees. She wasn't living isolated in a household. Uh, she lived in a hostel with other refugees and she did her work 
every day in the hotel. And there she met a fellow refugee, Anton Hunsdorfer, who was also uh, originally um, from uh, Germany, uh, but he um, he wasn't Jewish. He he was a communist, uh, and he he had to leave uh, Germany, obviously because he was persecuted, being a political opponent of the Nazi regime. And and yeah, that's uh, he's he's got quite an interesting story because he got quite involved in the in the union movement uh, in in North Wales in the agricultural union in the forestry uh, business, and he um he basically they met Fanny and Anton met and uh, fell in love and married and and had uh, had uh, their first son while they were still uh, living in Clangochlan. Um, so that's a very interesting story, obviously a very different life from an industrialist. And then, yeah, there are various stories of people who came as children, uh, some who lived with foster families and there, and some who lived in communal settings like these teenage refugees. There were about 180 teenage refugees who lived in Gwech Castle. Um, uh, this was... Um, set up by a Zionist organization and, and really they they were there to be trained in agricultural work so they would be able to make Aliyah, they would be able to uh, emigrate to Israel um, eventually or rather to Palestine actually. And um, and yeah, that's what they, they, they trained them there for. So that was a quite an interesting setting as well. Those very young refugees, uh, those refugees uh, that came with the kinder transport. So the kinder transport was the fourth way of being able to gain admittance to the UK. And that was only for unaccompanied children. So young people under 16. First it was under 18, then under 17, then under 16. So only for unaccompanied young children. So these were normally children who did have families in Germany, uh, in the German Reich, you know, Germany, Austria, uh, Czechoslovakia, and whose parents, by 1938, the scheme ran from um, December 1938 to September 1939, their parents were so desperate to get them to safety that they agreed to let them emigrate, they agreed to let them flee without them. And they were then in the UK, once they arrived, they were resettled with the with foster families or in these communal settings like Gwech Castle. And people had varying experiences. Uh, some people, um, for example, in Gwech Castle seemed to have enjoyed living in this sort of community with other young refugees, but there were also others who... Uh, have come to criticize their this experience that there wasn't enough adult supervision, that there was um, terrible conditions. Uh, the ca- castle never uh, had sort of modern conveniences. The sanitary conditions weren't great. It was they didn't have a right heating system in the winter, and especially sort of there was lack of adult supervision and possibly lack of schooling as well. So that uh, was one experience. Then of those who managed to be resettled with foster families, their experience also varied very much. Some foster families were extremely insightful. They were good at looking after small children. 
small children who were clearly traumatized, who'd been separated from their parents, who arrived in the UK, most of them not speaking any English nor any Welsh, uh, and who had to resettle with families they couldn't initially basically communicate with. So there's a story, for example, of uh, uh, some of the very young uh, children who came on a kinder transport, uh, like uh, uh, Renate Kress, later Renate Collins, who arrived as a five-year-old uh, from Prague, and she was uh, settled with a minister in and his wife, a religious minister in South Wales. And, and she's still alive. I still managed to talk to her, managed to interview her, and she uh, remembers her experience as uh, largely very positive, uh, that her foster parents looked after her well. Um, and these foster parents, they tried to keep up uh, with her, keep up her uh, identity. They talked to her about her birth family, and they talked to her about her religious background as well, that she was not uh, a Christian uh, girl, that she was Jewish. And uh, the father actually at some stage worked in um, sort of in in um, in in comparative religious studies at Swansea University. So that that is she certainly remembers uh, her um, foster family with great fondness. Uh, and she I managed to, as I said, still interview her in uh, twenty twenty two in in Wales. Um, other stories are not. As positive, there were clearly there was clearly a lack of um, supervision, a lack of preparation of the foster parents. So there's another story of two extremely young uh, children who uh, came to the UK on a kinder transport. Uh, three year old twins, Lottie and Susie Bechhofer. Uh, they were um, from Munich. Uh, their mother had a very difficult life and had placed them in a orphanage. She was a single mother, placed them in an orphanage in Munich. And uh, to to save them, really, they were put on a kinder transport. So again, Jewish, uh, a Jewish mother. And she they were fostered again uh, by a minister and his wife in South Wales. But clearly they were not as insightful. They were not willing to... Um, keep up uh, their uh, sort of accept the the children's uh, background. They actually really wanted to pretend, certainly the foster father wanted to pretend that these children uh, were his birth children, which obviously they weren't. And um, this is one of the most harrowing stories because he was clearly a a very controlling and criminal man, he sexually abused Susie Bechhofer, which would obviously have terrible um, effect on her, the rest of her life. So there are lots of different stories, and there are stories of uh, quite sort of wonderful hospitality, people who really tried to put themselves out to help uh, refugees, some, you know, for example, the the foster parents, but also just other uh, people in Wales who encountered the refugees. For example, there's a story of uh, someone uh, who in Abagele, a policeman in Abagele, a sort of Bobby on the beat, who when he first encounters these teenage refugees, when they see him, 
they were very scared because obviously the experience they've had with men in uniform in Germany and they run away from this policeman. Uh, and, and he's very worried. He doesn't he doesn't want them to be scared of him. And he actually, you know, he actually goes to the castle with a cake and introduces himself to the community. So clearly there are a lot of people who, who made a big effort, but there are also some people who 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 didn't and and who who were while trying to, maybe trying to help they they did things that that really were totally unacceptable um was was there anything um sort of sp- you know that you discovered that was specifically welsh about the environment uh, um yeah, well, some um, of the um, the refugees they became Welsh speakers. So again, the uh, the young refugees in Abergele, they they lots of those young people they were already at least bilingual or possibly trilingual already. So learning another language didn't particularly phase them, and they they worked out that apparently when you you got to work with the local farmers, if you gave them if you spoke to them in Welsh, you get more treats. So they worked that out and they learned some Welsh very quickly. But also there's also the story of um there there the, the is the story of Kate Bosse Griffiths, who was a young a Jewish woman uh, from the east of Germany, from a town called Wittenberg. Her mother was Jewish. Her father wasn't Jewish. Um, she was a young woman, very educated young woman. She trained uh, as an archaeologist. She worked uh, in the in museums in Berlin, but she left um, Germany uh, in the mid-1930s because, again, it was clear she couldn't uh, have a career in Germany. She worked in various uh, in various sort of um, jobs as, as assistants of academics, and she met her husband, her later, uh, later uh, her, the man who would later become her husband, who was an ac- uh, academic as well and who was Welsh. So when they married, uh, they moved. They moved around a bit. They lived near Bala. Uh, then uh, at some stage they moved to uh, Abertau. They moved to Swansea, and um, she was really um, fascinated by the Welsh language. And she learned Welsh, and she became a Welsh language author. She wrote novels and poetry in Welsh. And she also became a Welsh language campaigner. Uh, there's, um, I, I managed to interview her son, uh, Heine Griffiths, who still lives in Swansea, and he told, he showed us uh, some documents, and he told us that she, she was one of those activists who refused to pay a parking fine because it was issued only in English, and um, so she became a campaigner as well. And 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 Heine says he does feel that she, um, she. That, that this was important to her. She thought that the Welsh people and the Welsh language were oppressed and obviously having suffered this experience of oppression in Germany, uh, she also uh, felt uh, very strongly uh, about um, the language rights and, and the rights of the Welsh people. So she was a very, um, very, very interesting woman and her son Heine Griffiths is a well a, langu- a Welsh language lecturer and her, her other son Robert uh, runs Ilova the Welsh language or the Welsh 
Welsh publishing house. So they've had a big influence. This family had a big influence, clearly, on uh, Welsh uh, life. That was very interesting. One of the things that struck me in the book was um, particularly how um, I think I think you said that the villages of Wales um, reminded the um, refugees of some of their hometowns, uh, the rural hometowns in Eastern and Central Europe. I'd never really thought of that. It makes me think of the times Wales has been used to double up as some of those locations in films. Yes. And, no, no, Fanny, Fanny Hochstetter said that it reminded her some of the, obviously the more wooded area in North Wales and reminded her of the Black Forest. And then uh, some other people, um, I haven't talked very much about the artists, I suppose, uh, the most, possibly the most well-known artist, Josef Hermann. He was a Polish uh, Jew who had already left Poland uh, in uh, the early 1930s and, and moved to Belgium. And then when, obviously, uh, the Germans advanced on Belgium, he escaped uh, to the UK, and he ended up living in Estradgilais, uh in South Wales. Again, he ended up uh, living in a village that was very much dominated by the mining industry, and he painted some very iconic uh, large paintings of, of the South Wales miners, but also he was very prolific also of the the local landscape in the valleys. Yeah, um, and, um, and that's interesting. Um, the you know the artists and the and, and, and the representation of the landscape, and um, um, one of the things that um, occurred to me as I, as I read your book is that the number of times that Wales and Israel have been compared, and I like the idea that um, Wales somehow was seen as a kind of training ground um, for uh, as preparation for a life um, on a kibbutz in in Palestine or Israel. Um, yes, uh, uh, that is definitely it was definitely the the case with the young refugees of of Clandaf and Gwech Castle. However, one has to say um, that didn't really work out so well in certainly not in the nineteen thirties uh, and forties. The hope that uh, the British, of course. Uh, uh, you know, had the mandate over Palestine at the time, but they hoped that if you managed to get into the UK, you could then um, emigrate to Palestine. That didn't work out for most of them at the time. Obviously, also during the war years, uh, just generally uh, travel was extremely difficult. But some of the the uh, young people um, who lived in Gwech Castle, they they did, uh, they did, they 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 were part of of Israeli society they lived in kibbutzim later um so so it did did work for 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 some people but um the Greek castle it was a training camp it was called the hashara they that did uh, sort of cease to exist in 1941 because in the end as beautiful as the castle was it was not particularly practical it was very difficult to heat and so on i've mentioned that already and mo- most of the people obviously also these young refugees they got older they were young teenagers when they arrived and then they got older and most of them actually moved uh, to england because the economic opportunities were were greater uh, in england at the time i suspect it didn't work out because um well, the weather here is rubbish. 
<laughs> doesn't prepare you for Israel in the slightest, does it? No, no, that is that is very true. I don't know quite how they all um, coped with that. Uh, there's there's actually less a fret less complaints about the weather than you you might expect. I have read quite a few uh, interviews where people complain about the food as well. The British food people the people didn't like it. It was too much white bread and tea. Uh, which is not something that so was certainly not so popular in in Central Europe at the time. <laughs> that that could be a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to move on to your final chapter. I thought that was very interesting. And um, if you wanted to speak a little bit about that, it's 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 um it's titled "Refugees in Wales Now and Then." Um, so I thought yes, well, a... I think, as I said in my introduction, very much my idea is to show sort of uh, show narratives of the complexity of of Welsh society, and obviously there are refugees arriving in Wales uh, these days, um, and there have been ever since the nineteen thirties. So I, I just give some sort of snapshots of people uh, uh, who who arrived. Um, in in more recent uh, years, and I've 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 given some sort of short stories of of people who Syrian refugees, for example, refugees uh, from other uh, parts of Europe, and also refugees who arrived. Uh, so, for example, Tamil refugees, uh, refugees who arrived from Asia. So, so really, they also there are some similarities because some of them uh, also sort of, you know, are very, very fond of the Welsh landscape. They're very, uh, they say it's sort of so beautiful, so green, and so on and so forth. There, some of the challenges are still similar. Some uh, women refugees who who found it really difficult to establish themselves. Some young refugees who try to get into education and whose educational opportunities are sort of cut short, possibly because uh, it, it, of economics, for example. That's something uh, Renata Collins describes, and that some of the young refugees uh, who who who've arrived in the twenty first century also arrived at, and then they, but often they also arrived at, uh, they also describe that sense of achievement that they have managed to get here and that they have managed to establish themselves, they have managed to establish their own uh, businesses as well, uh, and and that's certainly a matter of pride, and it was a matter of pride in the thirties and forties, and 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 still is a matter of pride now. Well, that's great, thank you, thank you for that. Um... Um, description and, and uh, of of your book, um, I understand there's an accompanying exhibition. Would you like to tell us more about that? Yes, there. So, so as I said, it was part of a project funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund, and uh, this uh, another of the outcomes of this project was a, a um, was actually a website. There's also a website. So, if you Google refugees from National Socialism in Wales, you'll end up with the website. But there's also an exhibition. So, this exhibition was showing at the Aberystwyth Art Centre uh, in uh, November, December, and January this year, 2023. And it has now moved on uh, to the Zenith and the Pierhead Galleries in Cardiff. So, at the moment, it's in the Zenith, the Pierhead Gallery. So, that's from mid-February uh, to uh, mid-April 2023. 
and it's free uh, so everybody can uh, everybody who wants to can go in and can have a look there's an exhibition film as part of that as well it was opened on St David's Day uh, in the Senate obviously we're very pleased about that uh, and then uh, it will um, go to the Pontio in Bangor uh, in the month of June as well so for for those of you living near there so that's June 2023 but just quite un, quite surprisingly, really, that it had such a reach. But this morning, we actually found out that it will also be showing in the Houses of Parliament for a week in May. So <laughs> this is not a, the Houses of Parliament stint is not something that's open to the public. That's only open for MPs and people who work in Westminster. But we're obviously very pre- pleased that it had that sort of reach um and and yeah as i said uh, we don't know where it's going after that but certainly in june it will be in Bangor. well that's excellent um and i hope the mps take a time to take time out to look at it um so we've we've taken up a lot of your time today but before you go um would you like to tell us what you're working on now Yes, well, I'm I'm working on another book also to do with refugees from National Socialism. I am working on a book that's specifically focused on the kinder transport because the kinder transport is often told as a very sort of positive story, a positive story that the UK, the UK government um, saved 10,000 children. Uh, and it is uh, true that the UK government initiated the kinder transport through a sort of policy change, but really it was volunteers and um, private individuals who supported the kinder transport. So I'm telling uh, the story of the kinder transport again for a general readership, but uh, I, I really wanted to tell the whole story, the complex story. And it, it relates to what I've done uh, with the uh, Finding Refuge book, because, again, ordinary people uh, feature largely in the book. Well, that's great. So I look forward to reading that, and maybe you can come back when it's published and talk about it. Oh, thank you very much. I would like that. Well, I want to thank you um, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed it. And um, take care. Yeah, thank you very much. 